Our scripture reading you will find in Psalm 32. A muskeel, which translates to a song that someone can learn something from. A muskeel of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the gush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then God himself speaks. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And then comes the conclusion. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. It's my privilege this afternoon to preach to you the word of our Lord as that is summarized for us in Lord's Day 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Catechism asks us, what is the fifth petition, namely, of the Lord's Prayer? And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is, for the sake of Christ's blood, do not impute to us, wretched sinners, any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us, that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. Following upon the preaching of God's word, we'll be singing from Psalm 32, verse 5. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, If you would go back in time and see yourself as a believer in Old Testament Israel, and someone came up to you and asked you, 
what God's deliverance was all about, you'd probably want to talk to that person about Egypt. You would speak to them about how God truly showed his might and greatness against the might of that superpower, Egypt, when he brought the ten plagues and he delivered his people out of their slavery, brought them to himself at Mount Sinai and eventually fulfilled his promise to their forefather, Abraham, when he took them to the promised land. You'd want to show that even the surrounding nations at the time were awestruck by God's almighty power. That's deliverance. And if that same person asked you, well, what has God actually promised you as a nation? You'd want to talk about the promises he had made to your forefather, Abraham. You'd want to talk about the fact that he had promised that you would become a great and populous nation. And that he had fulfilled this promise. Now, if you're a believer after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in what we call the New Testament age, our age, and somebody asks you, about God's deliverance, you probably won't talk about Egypt. First off, you'd want to talk about the fact that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to this world. And that Jesus Christ became one of us, lived among us, that he died on the cross to take our penalty before God, and that Amazingly, after three days in the grave, he was resurrected. Once again, living and seen by more than 500 eyewitnesses. And you want to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ will never again die. That he ascended into heaven and even now sits at the right hand of God, the Father. That is deliverance. You'd probably also want to talk about the fact that we all then have been delivered from our bondage, our slavery to sin through Jesus Christ. That's the way Paul paints the situation. Because indeed, right from the rebellion of our first forefathers, Adam and Eve, we have been under God's wrath. As we heard also in the baptism formula, we are born children of wrath because God hates sin. And we turned our backs on Him, our Creator. And in Jesus Christ, sin and death are conquered. Now if that same person asked you, well, what is it that God promises you as a people, as a church. You'd probably want to say, in line with John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus, he promises us, in the first place, forgiveness of sins. Because that means that we can be reconciled with our Maker and that we no longer face an angry God on Judgment Day. The difference that you hear between what 
An Old Testament believer in Israel might have said to those same questions and what we might say to those questions explains also the difference in sacrament used to identify our relationship with God. When God gave his promises to Abraham, the promise that was really highlighted was the one that God would make him a populous nation. And so the identifying sign of that relationship with God becomes circumcision, a sign on the male member, because God has promised to bless their marriages in that nation and grant many children. Whereas the big promise that you see in the New Testament, the one that is highlighted right from the very beginning with the preaching of John the Baptist, through the preaching of Jesus, through the letters of the apostles, is the promise of forgiveness of sins washed away in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the identifying sign with the relationship with God becomes baptism, that washing with water. And we want to look this afternoon at forgiveness of sins. For forgiveness of sins also forms a a central place in the Lord's Prayer that the Catechism is taking us through. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And we're going to look firstly at the blessing of forgiveness, secondly, at the question of attaining forgiveness, and thirdly, at the nature of forgiveness. First then, the blessing of forgiveness. Now, despite, brothers and sisters, what I've said about the big promise in the Old Testament being that of becoming a huge and populous nation, forgiveness of sins, of course, was also a crucial element in Old Testament faith. You can see that only if you think about the way in which you came to worship God in his temple. To be able to worship God, to be able to sing God's praises, to be able to pray to him, you need to be reconciled with him. To be reconciled with him, something needs to be done with respect to your sins. Either you pay the penalty yourself, which of course we know to be impossible, or it is paid for you. And that's what God pictured for them time and again when you came to the temple to worship God. The very first thing you did was present your animals for sacrifice. And you always brought at least two. One for a whole burnt offering and one for for a peace offering. And you would come before the priest and you would literally lean your hands on the heads of this animal. And before the priest, you would confess your sins. And having confessed your sins, and as it were symbolically brought them upon the animal, that animal would then be slain. Its neck would be slit, the blood would be poured out, caught in a bowl, splashed at the base of the altar. And that animal would be cut up and placed on top of the altar to be burned. The second animal would also be slit. Its blood would be caught and splashed against the altar. And its kidneys and liver and fat would be removed. They would be placed on the altar. 
and its meat would be boiled. Because that meat would be eaten in the temple later on when you celebrated with a holy meal your reconciliation with God. But first, those animals had to be burnt. They go up and smoke, as it were, because those animals are taking your place on the judgment of fire that you see before your very eyes. After that altar has gone up in smoke, that's when in a typical worship service in the temple, the priest would stand on his podium and he would give the priestly blessing, just like is often done at the end of a worship service with us. Only in those days, it wasn't at the end of the service. It was at the end of the sacrifice when reconciliation had been given, when forgiveness of sins had been accomplished symbolically. And because then everything was right with God, the worship could continue. And you would get reading and singing of psalms. You would get an explanation of God's word and it would finally culminate Indeed, in a meal itself in God's holy place. It was designed to lead you to an understanding of God's grace. The fact that God is the one that provides the reconciliation, despite the fact that He is the injured party. He's the one that we have offended with our sins. You know how it works with our human nature. If somebody offends us, we can sometimes get all uptight and self-righteous and demand from that other person that they take the very first step to making that right because they're the one that committed the sin. They're the one that offended us. Now we'll just sit back and we'll wait for them to make it right. It's not quite what God did, is it? Because if God had done that, we'd all be doomed. God himself makes it right. He showed that symbolically in the Old Testament with that ritual of sacrifice and he demonstrated it in his own son when he had his son crucified for our sakes. As I said, that temple liturgy and the way we understand it also through the Lord Jesus Christ can only give us a deep humility at God's grace. It leads to awe. It leads to bewilderment at what God has done for us and hopefully instills in us a desire to truly show thankfulness with our lives to God. For as the psalmist says in Psalm 32, we have been rescued, whether we, or we ought to appreciate that, we have been rescued from God's heavy hand. The psalmist writes, when he did not confess his sin before God, God's hand was heavy upon him. His strength was dried up as with the heat of summer, for he had some kind of an inkling of what would happen if he did not confess his sin. 
And so finally, he did acknowledge that before God. That's the only way to be truly reconciled to God. It's not to go through the rituals. It is to truly confess your sin to him. And understand that he grants that forgiveness, that pardon of sin. And the psalmist derives great comfort when he realized what God's grace was all about. You see that in in verse 8 when God himself speaks in this psalm. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In other words, when we're reconciled to God, we can reckon upon God's providential fatherly care for us. And God can reckon upon us wanting to show us Him, his, our thankfulness to him. And the way we do that is through his word. He's given us his law as a law of thankfulness. It's exactly the way it was given originally. If you think of the Ten Commandments, it wasn't that Moses went down to Egypt and took with him then a copy of the Ten Commandments that God might have given him. And Moses would then say to the people in Egypt, okay, here's God's law, the Ten Commandments, do this and... He'll save you. That's not what happened, is it? God saved Israel, brought them out of their slavery in Egypt, brought them to himself, and having been delivered, he gives them the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Here's how you can show thankfulness to me. And that's the way the law functions also in Psalm 32. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding. And that leads to a genuine joy. Isn't that also how the psalm ends? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If you really realize what God does for us in providing forgiveness of sins, in providing real reconciliation with the maker of this world, then you can only be joyous. Well, that brings us to the question of attaining forgiveness. Is it really that easy? Well, As I said, attaining forgiveness is actually more than just going through the ritual. And that was true also in the Old Testament. For God expected just a little bit more than that you would bring your animals, give them to the priests, say the right words, and it would all be good. Almost like magic. You can think, for example, of Malachi, who rails against people that do just that. They live immoral lives while they bring their sacrifices. God doesn't want that. And think of multiple psalms where God himself speaks against this. He says, what I desire is not so much the outward sacrifice as the sacrifice of a broken and a contrite heart. That your heart is right with God. Because only then do the rituals make sense. Why do you think we demand that Parents that bring their children for baptism, first off, do profession of faith. That's what they're doing. They're reprofessing their faith in front of the congregation because their heart needs to be right with God. They need to show genuine faith if the sacrament of baptism is going to make any sense whatsoever. 
And so also in Psalm 32, we're reminded of the same thing. When David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And he says that right at the beginning as well. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit, in his soul, in his heart, there's no deceit. You're not just saying it. You really mean it. The Lord Jesus emphasizes the same thing, does he not, in the prayer that he gives us? Forgive us our debts, he teaches us to pray, as we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, that we recognize what forgiveness is all about. And if we recognize what God has done to forgive us our sins against him, the almighty creator, then surely we will forgive those who confess their sin to us. Because anybody's sin against me is never going to measure up to the extent of my sin and what that means to almighty God himself. God was also teaching his people in the Old Testament what it meant to be truly penitent for one's sin. What it meant to have no deceit in your heart. I'll just give you one example. It comes from the law itself. Leviticus chapter 6. I'm going to read the first number of verses from that chapter. It talks about bringing a sacrifice. But more importantly, it talks about what you need to have done before you come to the temple with that sacrifice. Leviticus 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in the matter of a deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he's sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest, as his compensation to the Lord, a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. What's the text saying? It's saying when you realize your sin and when you confess your sin and you want to make it right with God and you want to bring that sacrifice to the temple, you do not come to the temple until you have made it good with your neighbor. You make it good with your neighbor first and you show thereby that you mean what you say when you say, I'm guilty, I have sinned. And then you come 
to the temple. Isn't that the same as the teaching of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5? He says the following. Verse 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, before the altar, Go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. The Lord Jesus teaches us too. When we come before God to worship him, to ask him for forgiveness, have we made it right with our neighbor? Are we also showing to God that we're genuine when we say, I repent, I'm guilty? And that's why, indeed, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, forgive us, Lord, our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Again, that we recognize what forgiveness really means. You see, feeling sorry about something that's gone wrong in your life is not quite the same thing as confessing sin to God. The letter to the Hebrews shows us the difference. Using the example of Esau, it says in chapter 12, verse 16, the following. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For, and here's the point, you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What's been said there? It's been said there that Esau was genuinely upset, really upset, crying, because of what had happened and what he had done. He'd been stupid and he realized that. But the Bible says that was not repentance. You can be as sorry as you like. Repentance is recognizing that we have offended God with our sins. Repentance is then making that sin good with our neighbor because you recognize what it means that you can confess that sin to God and that God will forgive you. That's something that Esau was not prepared to do. That brings us in the final place this afternoon to the nature of forgiveness. When God forgives, he really does forgive our sins. And God tries to make that clear to us by using 
a number of different images to illustrate what he means. In the Old Testament, God can talk about forgiving by carrying away your sin or by wiping your sin clean, blotting it out. Or, as we've seen in Psalm 32, by covering it up or by passing by your sin. Causing it to be far away. Think of Psalm 103. As far as east is from the west. Not remembering your sin. Here's one. Also used of God's forgiveness. Throwing your sins behind his back. Vivid images. To show us that when God says, I forgive you. He means it. In the New Testament, next to reusing some of those images from the Old Testament, we hear about forgiveness in terms of acquittal. Most of the time when it says or talks about forgiveness in the New Testament, it's literally acquitting sins. That legal language to say they're done with in a court of law. And they're also talked about in terms of propitiating God. Paul likes to use that word. We don't often use it in English these days. It means literally to appease God. That God is appeased by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In other words, that his anger has been softened. And is no longer there. But you know, brothers and sisters, when God forgives us, while that forgiveness is genuine and that sin will not be held against us on the last day, it does not necessarily mean that there won't be any consequences in our lives. You think of David. David and his sin against Bathsheba. David cherished improper sexual feelings. He was fed by an Old Testament form of pornography, gazing through the window and looking at somebody who was bathing at night. He compounded that sin with adultery and then tried to cover it up by planning the death of Bathsheba's husband. He did not confess it for a long time. But when he did, he was forgiven, as we can see in Psalms like 51. But that did not mean that God had consequences for him. As you well know, the child born of that union was taken by the Lord. Thereafter too, because of David's delay in confessing his sin, the Lord had said, your family will fall apart. And it did. Bit by bit. Sin took hold, and eventually David himself was even pushed out of the capital city and the throne by one of his sons. Sin has consequences. And that means too, brothers and sisters, when we have fallen into sin, if we are genuine about coming to God and asking for forgiveness... We will also take a, a good hard look at ourselves and ask ourselves, how can I prevent 
myself from deliberately walking into that kind of temptation again. If we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, and that's the next petition, lead us not into temptation, how can we pray that if we, if we walk into temptation deliberately ourselves? In other words, walk into an area where we know we're weak. And we know that there's a good possibility that we will fail and fall. If we mean it to ask for forgiveness, we put up barriers so that we won't so easily fall into the same temptation the next time. We live by the cross, the cross of Christ. We live out of that forgiveness, out of that sense of being freed from sin through Christ's blood. He sacrificed his life on our behalf. And if we realize what that means, eternal life, then you realize what Paul says when he says in Romans 12, the way of thankfulness is presenting your body, a living sacrifice to God. Then we, light, then we show that we have understood what forgiveness of sins is all about. Yes, it is a true blessing. Because it is at the heart of the gospel. It's what the sacrament of baptism is illustrating to us. That God in Jesus Christ becomes our heavenly Father. Not just for now, but forevermore watching over us and caring for us, if we will but be truly humble. Get on our knees. Confess our sin. And lead a truly thankful life to Him. God be praised for this gospel. Amen.